Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Podcast Nation, we have a beautiful episode for you. We are talking with Dr. Tracy Hogue. She is uh, MD, PhD, got a PhD in epidemiology and public health. And she was one of the authors of the Wisconsin Wood County studies looking at the risk of in-school transmission. And basically, I'm, I don't want to ruin it for you, but just really illustrating how schools are safe, how they're not as much of a major source of spread as we think, how when COVID comes into schools, tends to come from outside in, from the community, and tends not to spread within within those doors. This was a very enlightening study that the CDC also published. So we had to talk to Tracy. We had to pick her brain, talk about what she thinks about schools openings, getting her input on vaccinating our kids. We talk about as well the risk of outdoor transmission with kids. And we even dive a little bit into asymptomatic testing when we think that's warranted. This is a beautiful episode. Before jumping into it, let me tell you about some of our initiatives. Solving wellness. We're kickstarting that bad boy. You want virtual workouts, yoga, cooking and nutrition advice, self-care, meditation. We're doing it all. It's all focused on healthcare providers because we want to address that burnout. We want to make sure our healthcare providers are at their finest, especially during this, this tough time, especially during this pandemic. So check us out, solvingwellness.ca. Sign up and uh, be part of that community. We're changing that bookie, yo. For real. All right, listen, without further ado, I'm going to bring Tracy in the mix. Once again, native from Wisconsin, originally from Denmark, currently board certified physical medicine rehabilitation physician working out of Northern California. Man, she's something special. So without further ado, Dr. Tracy Hogue. Quadcast Nation. I am super jazzed up to bring to you Dr. Tracy Hogue or... Dr. Tracy Hug. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I tried to I tried to represent the Danish way of pronouncing this. Oh, Tracy, forgive me. I thought I was gonna represent. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. But thank you so much for joining. I, I I don't know if you could tell how excited I am about this because I've been trying to track you down and I I, I did I did ask Monica to make the connection. But I'm certainly glad you joined the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really a big fan of your show ever since Monica introduced me to it. So you've got a really good thing going here. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Oh, okay. So 
let me ask you, you have been like, you're a big deal. You've been, you know, in front of government officials talking about some of the, the study results when we're looking at kids, schools and COVID. But where did it start? Like what drove you to make these evaluations? Yeah, so I I think it was because I saw a disconnect between what was happening in Denmark and Europe and the United States. And it was it was really concerning to me because because I have kids and I could kind of see from the beginning that the way we were looking at schools was not the way that, um, well, the Scandinavian countries and most of Europe were looking at schools. And it was in April, mid-April that Denmark basically, you know, they they said, okay, well, we don't know a lot about COVID. We know that this is probably a big chance, but we're going to open the elementary schools before everything else mm. because the society can't function if our kids don't have a place to go. Right. So they didn't open any of the rest of the economy and they opened the they opened the schools and they like used, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts clubs. They used Tivoli um, amusement park. They used all these sort of open spaces and um, and they they got it to work. And the case counts only went down after they after they opened their schools and then they kind of gradually reopened the economy. And and in my opinion, I mean, they've had one of the best responses to the pandemic because they've had a limited amount of lockdown um, and they always prioritized the children first. And when they did have lockdown, they had protections for people who were out of work so that you weren't missing income. Um, and, and they've had one of the lowest death rates in Europe. I believe it's second lowest after, uh, no third after Norway and Iceland. So, wow. and all three of those countries have taken really similar strategies, but Iceland's uh lucky because they're isolated from the rest of the world. Mm. So that was easy for them. Mm-hmm. So basically you, you saw this disconnect. You saw how the Danes were uh, prioritizing the kids yeah. and you saw that it didn't seem to have a negative sequelae in terms of. Spread yes, exactly. Of, yeah. Yeah. So, so then, you know, so I thought that, okay, well that's interesting. And now there's, there's really nothing happening in the U S in terms of getting kids back to school and, and, you know, I kind of thought, well, we still don't really know. Maybe kids really do spread this disease a lot. It, it, you know, at that point, it was April. And then so Jennifer Caston is an epidemiologist friend of mine, um, and she was the first person who kind of pointed out to me and started writing about the fact that there were these reports of kids not really spreading the disease. And when she pointed that out to me, I became really fascinated um, and started looking into the studies myself and looking at what was coming out of France. And um, they were just kind of, you know, that that when the schools were open in Ireland before the lockdown, before they even knew COVID was coming, there were no cases that came from the schools. And then there were like these reports of, you know, students, you know, who had 190 contacts and no one got sick. And and so I thought, you know, this is really different from other viruses and this could have a huge impact on the way we handle the disease because we knew early on that kids were fairly mildly affected by it, which was amazing. Um, but but the transmission part was something that came later was kind of um, unexpected. And and I, I could as far as I could tell, it was like Europe was kind of grasping that, you know, and the United States was like they just our public health response was like, we can't get beyond the fact that kids are Petri dishes. It's like, it was not in the, 
it was not in the psyche of North America. And I think in Canada somewhat too, that the kids might not be the same vectors of disease that adults are. Um, and so I, I, I just thought it was interesting that it seemed like systematically we were ignoring the science about that, which seemed like it should have such a big, big impact on the school reopening. And, and so I just, basically started writing all these posts about what was going on in Holland and how they were opening the schools and it was going really well. And the kids didn't have masks. And, you know, it was just kind of like they were just seeing what was going to happen, but also following the little science there was and, and actually having, having good results with that. And then, you know, I kind of thought, well, the U S is going to catch on. I'm going to keep writing, you know, about it on social media and see, see what happens, see people's responses. And then it was like, people went from being interested in it to the day that Donald Trump said, open all the schools. Like everyone that I knew just basically thought I was wrong all of a sudden wow. because they said, well, whatever wow. Donald Trump thinks it's the opposite. So, <laughs> um, wow. yeah. yeah, no, it's, I mean, there's a lot of good points there to get, cause I think like, I don't know where we lost it. I think well, you mentioned Donald Trump. I think at some point this, this response became, hyper-political as opposed to data-driven, which is what yeah. has personally been driving me absolutely nuts. Anybody yes. that's listened to the show, um, you know, it's, it's just preaching like, what does the data tell us? And that's how our response should be. And I agree, even my evaluation of the data, it was pretty clear that kids aren't major vectors of spread. You know, even mm-hmm. personal stories where, you know, where one kid would have it in the house and nobody else would get it, you know? And yeah. I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I just think it was yeah. um, something that was a hard concept to, to register for some, especially when you think kids are normally the opposite. Like you, you have right. four kids, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 we have three. Like I'm during a normal, you know, pre-COVID uh, winter, like every three weeks we have a cold, like, you know what I mean? And so yes, yeah. it just, I think maybe it's a bit of the, the that culture, it's a bit of the political side, but it just, it was so sad that we weren't allowing the data to drive our decision-making when it came to our young ones. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't ever want to give the impression that like kids don't spread it at all. Cause I remember in the beginning thinking, well, what if they really don't spread it at all? But I mean, that hasn't been the case, but, um, but they definitely have consistently been found to catch it less and to spread it less frequently than adults. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of also gets into what we found in, in Wisconsin, which, you know, mm-hmm. ended up, I, I, I know we're going to, we're going oh, no, to get to that. We can jump, no, we can I mean, jump in there. We can jump in yeah, there. Tracy. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. This is what got, got me so excited. CDC I, sponsored, you know? I, I mean, like, yeah, no, it was not <laughs> CDC sponsored. So that gets me back to actually another point that I want to jump into before it. I even start talking about the study, which was like, why was the CDC not even looking at this? You know, why were, why were there no, you know, why was there no sponsored research or anything about COVID and kids and schools and like people studying how to get the schools open safely? Like there has been nothing. I mean, everyone that I know who has been doing this is doing it as volunteer work. Um, mm. and, and it's because we all think it's so important. And, you know, I just feel, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding that it was CDC sponsored, but they published it, which was great. Yes. Thanks so, for the clarification. Yeah. 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 So, 
So, I mean, what, what we ended up doing was studying, um, uh, it was like 5,500 students and staff in Wisconsin, it's rural Wisconsin, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and um, the, so what we had was we got a donation of cloth masks for the students. Um, and that was really the only funding, you know, type of funding that we had for the study. Um, mm. And we studied them. Um, over 17 weeks. And at that time, the case rates in Wood County, Wisconsin were incredibly high. It was up to 41.6% test positivity rate. And I was looking at it and uh, over 5% of the entire population of the county got COVID during our study period. Um, So it was like, and, and I think it was more because you have to understand this is like rural Wisconsin, very Republican, like people are not going to be tested unless, you know, they really need to be tested type of mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. And so despite that, um, we still found that um, there were only seven cases that spread in the schools and no teachers got infected by students. Um, And uh, it was, so we had a, we had a, a 37% lower rate of COVID in the school than in the community. But I I do want to point out that um, it was only less than 4% of the cases that were in the schools came from the schools. It was the remaining 96% of the cases in the schools came from the community. Community. So that was brought into the school. That's, that's right. So it was like, once the cases got into the schools, they didn't really spread further. Mm -hmm. At least that's, that's what we found. And so, you know, it really opened my eyes to like, wow, schools, they're a safe place for kids. You mm-hmm. know, um, it's like we have all these benefits of school that kids get to be with their friends. They get to learn. They they're, you know, they're somewhere during the day while their parents are working. I mean, all the benefits that we know of. But then there's less COVID in the schools than in the communities. And I think what a lot of parents or a lot of people don't know if they're not a parent is it's like, you know, um, kids need to be somewhere during the day while their parents are at work, especially if they're young. And, you know, that, I mean, that was my, that was our situation as my husband and I, we're both physicians and, you know, we were like, um, okay, well, we're not quitting our jobs. And, and, you know, we, we couldn't, we literally had trouble, we had trouble affording putting them in daycare, which was the daycare that was right next to their school um, where they were going to be sitting in one room with like 90 other kids doing Zoom um, without a playground, without any opportunity to go outside all day. Mm. Um, and we were supposed to be paying, you know, like $2,000 a month for that. And it was like, no way. And I mean, so I think that opened my eyes to like, what are what are people doing? What are essential workers doing? What are their kids doing while they're while they're at work, because obviously, you know, people just can't up and quit their jobs. And, and so I, it was kind of, it's kind of two things coming together here. It's like, you've got this, this crisis where, where kids need to go somewhere and parents need to go to work and there's nowhere for them to go. And then you've got this other, you know, factor, which is the science of it, which is, you know, schools actually look like they're really safe and probably safer for kids than daycares and, you know, passing them around between grandmas and things. It's like, you know, yeah. so it there there's there's two things that we're saying we really, you know, should be opening up the schools and only closing them unless we absolutely need to. 
And then in the U.S., it's been like, well, schools have been closed for over a year and it's still in California. I just looked in um, 30, only so only 37% of high school and middle school students have even gone back to the classroom at all yet. So it's like they haven't been in school for, you know, over a year now. And and if you look, there was the McKinsey report came out and it was like if kids miss school for a whole year and you start, you know, the next year and they're doing it over Zoom school, they're basically going to start out lower than they ended the year further the prior. So, it's yeah, it's it's crazy from an educational standpoint, too. It's, it's unbelievable. And uh, you make a lot of good points, Tracy, like, like number one, these virtual platforms, this is, un, uh, I've been saying it's uncharted waters. We haven't really fully evaluated these things. We don't know the long-term implications on their education truly by doing these platforms. Two, we have not only the, you know, Wood County data, but several other studies implying that schools are safe. The fact that even like one of the worries in Ontario is that teachers are, you know, they're vulnerable in the classroom and, you know, a lot of data showing that, you know, when you compare it to uh, them being in the community, it's actually not worse. Yeah, exactly. Like there was a good study out of Scotland that looked at basically hospitalizations and severe COVID and compared teachers to other essential workers and teachers had a lower risk of hospitalization and severe disease from COVID. And, Mm-hmm. You know, they're there. The kids are back in school and they don't they don't wear masks, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I, I mean, that's yeah. a whole other story of how much masks are yeah. doing. But like they did have a lower risk there than other essential workers. So mm-hmm. um, and and yeah. Yeah, I, no, I, 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 I definitely hear you. And the other aspect that we we often forget about with with schools, too, like like right now in Ontario, we're, we, we're all hands on deck in, in our hospitals because it's, uh, you know, we're getting that heavy third wave. And, you know, I, I worry about some of these healthcare providers that, you know, for them to be frontline and the kids not in school, who's yeah. going to look after the kids, right? Exactly. Like that's a- yeah. Like I know that there was a hospital in Arizona that started their own school because like all their nurses were quitting, Yeah. you know, and probably not just nurses. I mean, just healthcare workers in general were quitting. And so I was like, wow, I mean that it is really sad. That, yeah. <laughs> you know, the public school system like disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> At least in California did for basically a year and it's coming back very slowly. And then, you know, we, we could talk about hybrid too, but it's like, well, why, why are we doing hybrid? Um, like I do not understand why we're doing hybrid. We can now have the kids back. CDC says three feet of distance is enough. And, and, um, you know, it's, we, we could do if, if, if lunch is, is a big concern, you know, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a super expensive thing to have kids eat outside or yeah. you know, like be a little especially bit creative California. with it. The, the whole, what's that? I said, especially whole, in California. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe not everywhere, but, but the whole thing has really felt like, um, you know, no one is working towards making it happen. It's just, I, I, I kind of worry even that kids get the sense that, they're being deprioritized. Like my son just asked me today. He's like, Oh, my friend, you know, he's like, he's, his friend is in public school. I'm, I, we moved our kids to a private school. And he mm-hmm. said, he, he only gets to go to school two half days a week, but, but that doesn't make sense. Why are there adults in restaurants without masks on? And that's okay. And I was like, yeah, yeah. 
That is a good question. <laughs> well, you can't tell me, Tracy, that the kids haven't been deprioritized. Like we, we, there was a even a push where we are that we were going to close playgrounds, um, and you you close down schools, you close out playgrounds. They have no activities. Uh, we're good friends with a child psychologists. She's never been as busy as she has been. I've yes. had people t- track me at work talking about how they're struggling with their kids left, right, and center. And yes. I know it's, it's, I mean, these kids, they need to be outside. They need to play. I mean, this is the absolute safest environment for them to be in is to be, you know, outside. And, and uh, the fact that we're closing playgrounds makes absolutely zero sense from a public health standpoint. And it's, yeah. you know, we've seen the same thing with adults too, that it's like you close all outdoor things and everyone gets together indoors. Inside. Like, exactly. <laughs> this is, I, I mean, this is going off a, on a bit of a tangent, but it's worth it. It's, it's like, I, I don't know who's making these policies, but you know, I, for my point of view, locally, we, we kind of miss a boat on the outside uh, promoting outside uh, activity, like really yeah. for not only mental health, uh, physical health, overall well-being, you know, reducing COVID risk. In fact, when we see so many uh, obese diabetics, like just being outside, connecting with people outside, like, you know, as an epidemiologist, like the risk of getting COVID outside. I mean, you can't yeah. see. Oh yeah. It's less than one per a thousand cases are spread outside. And like, you look at the, there was a youth soccer study uh, uh, all, uh, that was done over last summer and there were oh, 91,000 youth soccer players. And there was only one case where they said potentially it was spread related to soccer among the mm-hmm. kids. I mean, that is such an incredibly low risk and so many benefits for these kids yeah. are being outside. And, you know, it was a, like lack of physical activity was the third highest risk factor for getting severe COVID um, after old age and organ transplant in a British, uh, the uh, British Journal, the Journal Sports of Sports Medicine. Medicine. Yeah, yeah. yeah I saw and that. I, and like, I was like, See, we are not we are not using those data and those studies to guide what we're doing. Like, I, you know, I think a lot of public health people feel more and more like our response to this pandemic has been all about appearances. A hundred percent. You know, when like I, I, I just like I, I, I mean, like locally too, we we were the, when uh, we had ice rinks. It was January. Everything was closed down, and they were like, "Kids can't play hockey outside. They could skate on the rink, but you can't use hockey sticks." I'm like, "That's ludicrous." Focus on the big picture. At that time, it's like deal with long term care, deal with essential workers, get vaccines rolled out, but don't tell me kids playing hockey is a risk, like a right, like a, exactly. a significant enough risk in the big picture. And uh, I, I think I got in a little bit of trouble for that one, but honestly, <laughs> well, no, that's, that's so true. I mean, I, I, you know, if I get into like the situation, so I'm, I'm a consultant for the, the diocese, local diocese that our kids ended up going to school uh, at. And, you know, basically I was able to kind of show them the data about outdoor transmission and, and kids transmission. And so, they ended up, you know, changing the rules so the kids could go outside, play with balls, play at recess, play on the playground equipment. And 
And it has, you know, it's made such a difference in, in these kids quality of life. Like my kids really started enjoying going to school. They had more friends and, you know, and I just want to say, because I think a lot of people don't know about our Wood County, Wisconsin study that the kids in our study were, were out at recess without masks on playing with all the playground equipment that they wanted to. And we still saw such low transmission. That is not unexpected. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think I can't state enough that, you know, outside is where people should be, where it's the safest. I think that's finally getting, getting out. And then hopefully it sounds like there's going to be some changes in rules from the CDC soon about, about wearing masks outdoors. But, you know, yeah. masking outside, especially during exercise, really never, it never made any sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what we know, uh, indoor sustained proximity to somebody with COVID, this is the risk. And, uh, you know, I, we have, a, unfortunately, an ICU full of COVID patients right now. And I could, I don't know a single one that was related to an outdoor transmission, you know. And Yeah, yeah, well, I, that, I mean, the data supports that. And, yeah, and, and I, I just want to be very clear that, you know, part of the reason that I got so interested in studying kids and in, in COVID and, and, and doing all this work is not just because of the interesting aspect of the kids, but because, you know, I really take COVID seriously. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's been absolutely devastating. I mean, especially for older people. And I, you know, I, I was terrified of my parents getting it and, you know, what's happening in India right now. It's absolutely wow. terrible. Um, and, you know, my, my way of thinking and, you know, the reason that I've, you know, dedicated so much time to it is I feel like we need to have a more sensible and a more like high yield response to this. Um, and it's kind of, and it's got me thinking too about like global vaccination strategy and, and, you know, prioritizing vaccinating older adults and adults across the world before we vaccinate kids, if they're less severely affected and don't spread the disease as much. But I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the, the whole time we should have been really focusing on, you know, where we knew the disease was spreading and what the highest risk things were. And instead we were focusing on like shaming people for like not having a mask on running on a trail. And I don't know. <laughs> it was no, a shame. I, Lots of yeah, energy wasted. I, I think, I don't know if this would change it if we have another when, if, and when we have another pandemic, but I, I do hope I, I should say when that we do learn that let's let the data drive our decisions. We'll have way better outcomes, way better, you know, instead yeah. of trying to, you know, use our judgment or, uh, or I don't know. Well, and it's all been very emotional. It's been, and, yeah. and also like you've already alluded to, it's like, these two camps. Right. And, and it's the, you know, the people who have, you know, Democrats who, who, um, you know, want to the, you know, they're, they're in the camp of, we take, you know, co and I say they, because I'm, I, I'm not going to say I'm Democrat or Republican. I'm just going to stay out of it. So I'll yeah. say they, so like Democrats say like, you know, we want to take uh, all these measures to stop COVID, but, you know, they're also the political party that historically has been like, we need to give more attention to homelessness and joblessness and, and kids who are underserved, you know, getting better education. And it's like, you know, then the party just like ended up focusing 100 percent on COVID and like zero percent on 
you know, the other, you know, other very important work that they were doing. Um, and, and, and it, it, it led to a really bad situation that was really um, unbalanced and ended up, you know, leading to a lot of unnecessary lost lives, not just from COVID, but, um, you know, I think that uh, there's, well, 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 maybe not, maybe we don't have the data on, on suicide yet, but, but there's certainly been a lot of anguish and poverty and, you know, mm. difficulties, psychiatric illnesses for people. And we're going to see ripple effects from the children not having access to education and um, for, for, for decades, you know, so yeah. it's, I mean, yeah. even in, within our country, like I know I was, I think when I heard Vinay say this and I got, I was really, I, I never thought that hard about it, but like, w- do we really want to wait before suicide numbers go up? Like, yeah. it's, it's like, like, I know. like, well, it's like, it's it, like a extreme it, end of things. You know what I mean? Well, and but, what I have to say about that is it's, just, it's really hard to get um, up to date data on suicide numbers. Like I've looked into it and it seems like it takes almost a year for, for it to catch up in the, mm-hmm. the, in the national database. And, you know, Jean Noble at UCSF has been doing really important work and she's been finding in the ER that they're admitting, like it's gone up 75% how many kids they're admitting for psychiatric illnesses. And it's like, okay, so yeah, well, we know that there's like a crisis and that is San Francisco, Right now, they only have 10% of all their kids in school. It's like totally ridiculous because they have such low case numbers there. And yet they have this like mental health crisis among their youth, you know? Yeah, that's Um, unfortunate. I think that's coming. But the the other thing that was a bit, um, I thought, disturbing, no press, like local press or like national press in Canada picked this up. But when we, one of our, our government bodies looked at access desk 2020 compared to 2019, and about half of them were related to COVID, but the other half were related to like whatever, like whether it's suicide, substance uh, abuse, yeah, MIs, exactly. like, and, yeah. and this got no press. I, I, I actually legit send it off to all our media sources. I'm like, y'all got to cover this. And nobody covered this. I know there's so many, there's so many health conditions that are being ignored. And I know Monica Gandhi's talked about that too, with, with HIV and substance abuse and like how it's just, you know, HIV people not taking their medications. And it goes along with that, that like childhood vaccination rates worldwide have dropped by like over 30%. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, okay, guys, these are the diseases that we are really worried about in kids, like really worried about. Um, So. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's the one it's like you alluded to. It's like, we need to be less myopic, you know, in, in my line of work, you can't just look at the kidney. You can't just look in the, at the heart. You got to look at the whole picture. You have to be having a holistic approach. And it's yeah. the same the way it's got to be with our kids. It's the same thing with it. It has to be with society in general. Yes. We don't want to overwhelm the system with COVID. Yes. We don't want people to die unnecessarily, but we don't also want people to uh, suffer from the consequences of our actions, of our, of our restrictions. This is why I think even in our current state, imagine, I know this is very more, well, actually it's more maybe on the Danish side than the, on the U.S. side, but imagine if we said, you know, yes, we're going to have to close down schools, but we are going to subsidize counseling for, for kids. Like if you feel like your kids in need, we are going to provide that support, you yeah. know, like some kind of like 
Right. Like we're, we're actually in this together. Not like you people just do what we say, but like, yeah. I will say in, in Denmark, I can speak to this specifically because when they closed the schools, they kept the free daycares open. So yeah. like, yeah. uh, there was still always somewhere for, for kids of essential workers to go. And like the fact that that didn't exist, like on, on really on any level that I was aware of here is just like, you know, how, how can that be? I mean, um, and I think that, you know, also it's it's very impactful that you as an ICU doctor and you've had other ICU doctors on who are like seeing people dying of COVID and you're really, really worried about COVID that you are standing up and saying, but, you know, all these other things are also really important. Like, yeah. You know, uh, they, they, there are other types of public health crises and we can't ignore those. Yeah. And a hundred percent. And it's just once again, having that holistic view to just take that bird's eye view and say, like, what are we actually doing? Like every every action has a consequence, you know, and just thinking about it, think about three steps ahead. Because, uh, I mean, like we said, Tracy, unfortunately, I think we'll have like a mental health crisis. We're going to have the delayed cancer. Uh, like I've already yeah. seen some of the uh, results of people either being too fearful or the delayed cancer screening. We've already seen people presenting really late. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just like this avalanche is, you know, that keeps building uh, outside of the COVID, outside of COVID. But um, right. And, 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 and now it's like, well, we're, we're, we have a lot of the population vaccinated now. I know Canada's not quite as many you guys are impressive. As, as we have, but but it is like, what, what is the end game? Like, um, yes. you know, in, in California, it's, I mean, I'll just give an example that is kind of driving me nuts right now. So in, in the LA unified school district where the, where the teachers are over 80% vaccinated, um, you know, and, and a lot of them are still teaching in from other rooms. Um, and, and the kids are basically like in these little plastic barrier desks where they're watching their teacher on, on zoom. And then, you know, I was in, and in New York city, um, the same thing where a lot of teachers are still teaching remotely and the kids go to school. And, you know, I, I, I've been very clear from the beginning that I, I do not want to blame or fault teachers because I, I absolutely love teachers. Like I adore them. I have my whole life and I've had so many good teachers but I, I worry that it's a problem with the public health messaging if like, you know, teachers without other health conditions um, are too afraid to go back to school once they've been vaccinated. When we already showed, you know, studies have already shown that schools were so safe before teachers were even vaccinated. Mm. And now it's like, you know, they're, they're, it's almost like there has to be, well, there has to be someone to step in and say, like, stop the madness. You know, we just need to start teaching our kids, like, in person. And, and really, it's, it's a shame that we can teach kids over Zoom, like, that that's somehow an option or that's somehow become acceptable because, you know, from the beginning, we would have made it work by teaching kids outside or, like, you know, some some option that at least, you know, gave kids something somewhere to go, some way to learn. I mean, it's yeah, it's but, really a but this is what I'm, I'm, I'm ultra anxious about. Actually, Tracy is the, the end game because a couple of things like one of the things when when we add restrictions, when we add that extra layer. So locally, they've been told that if you're going to go to a playground, you have to wear a mask. And so all these added layers 
it's going to be harder to retract them when it's, it's yeah. truly is safe to be able to. Exactly. You know I mean? Exactly. And, 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 and once again, I do think there are consequences there. Like my, my, I'm, like I'll give you an example. I've said it on the show before, so forgive me crowd. But when I had a buddy, actually, maybe I've never said this story. My two-year-old, he was coming, a buddy was coming to drop something off and the two-year-old started to walk towards him. And then he, he started to pull away, like, you know, as if the, you know, little Zeke is going to give him uh, uh, COVID from a oh. quick interaction. And I'm like, what is he teaching? What's that teaching Zeke? You know, people are afraid of you. Like, like this is, yeah. this is not good. Like, I, no. I don't care what anybody's telling me. Like, this is, this is not good. And yeah, no, and, exactly. And, you know, that having that extra layer of anxiety, that extra layer of, yes, we've been told that you're vaccinated and schools are safe, but yet the messaging is that I still need a teacher in a separate room in a hazmat suit or whatever. Yeah, no, it is. It is. is, is, I mean, when you look at the data that show like less than, so there have been a a breakthrough infections after vaccination, there's been less than one per 12,000 in real life. It's like, you know, I mean, people just kind of need to think about that risk. Like it's way more risky to just drive to school in your yeah. car than it is to be in school. And I just I don't think that humans are very good at, at understanding risk in, in daily life. And 100 percent, 100 percent. But do you think it's do you think it's our fault, though? Or do you think it's like when you hear about um, like when we give risk uh assessment of risk maybe it, it, it's better to be using analogies like that you know what yeah. i mean like i don't know exactly people... like numbers are kind of meaning you know don't yeah. mean as much to a lot of people right and it's like you just need to compare it to things that people know um and they'll be you know they'll be able to understand it it better it's like it was very powerful you know when we kind of saw okay kids are are, are dying at a rate less than they die from influenza from COVID. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So then people started to understand like that. Okay. That, that I get that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but it's also just like become, become normal to just be afraid. And, and there's that too, which is like, you know um, uh, and, and, and that's, and that the longer that it goes on, the harder it's going to be to undo. So like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on purpose, like taking my mask off with my vaccinated patients and hugging them and like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like showing them this is okay. You know, if they let me, but you know, yeah. we agree on it, but yeah. um, I'm in private practice, so that's okay. But, um, yeah. but, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you talk about the unintended consequences of like prolonged mask use, but like, so kids, you know, when they're, it's good for kids to exercise. Like we've talked about this before, but like when you're, when you're running and playing with a mask on, like it is not fun. So like, we're basically, you know, teaching kids like that it's not enjoyable to exercise or have fun. You know, it's like, I, I don't know. And, and, and it's not just the exercising aspect of it. It's, it's the socializing aspect too, because I mean, you've probably noticed too, that it's like you see someone on the street and it's like, maybe people are just like more like, I'll just look the other way, not get close, you know? And I, yeah, I worry it becomes a habit. And especially with kids, like if they're just like, yeah, told to stay away from their friends, how do they get over that? (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it it becomes a muscle after a while. It gets rope memory, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try and remain optimistic that, you know, at least when 
case numbers go down, the hospitalizations go down, when we have that extra layer of a level of vaccinations within our community, that people will just be like, you know what? The the data supports this. We're good. In, right. Well, I, I think that's I what a lot so. of us were hoping for in California. And now we're like, well, we are, we're, are, we're, we're like there right now. And but, but I gotta <laughs> say, you guys had the, some of the most conservative, like ultra conservative stuff going yes. on. Yes. Oh gosh. You know, and that is so interesting that you brought that up. Cause I was just looking at like where the most cases of MISC per capita were. And it looked like it was California. And I was like, oh, of course, how ironic, like the state that had their, the most of their schools closed you know, had the most, you know, multi-system inflammatory disease uh, related to COVID, like of, of any of any state. And I was yeah. like, that is just so ironic, but also points to the whole fact that you're more likely to get COVID, you know, in the community than in school. So, yeah. Um, and this, yeah. And, and yeah, that was an aside. But. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's hard to deny the science at this point. Yeah. I got I got a, cu- a couple quick hitters because I, I yeah. want to hear your opinion on a couple of these things. So overall, vaccinating kids, do you have an opinion? Yeah. So, you know, I am definitely not someone who's like uh, opposed to vaccinating kids. Um, but I think, you know, that it's it's going to be important to prioritize vaccinating adults. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess. I just want to say, like, I'm not very good at looking at things from a nationalistic standpoint, just being a double citizen. And like, I'm just that's not the way my brain works. And so when I know that, like, there are all these high risk adults across the world that haven't been vaccinated, I it doesn't really make sense to me that when we live in a world of limited supplies that we're like hyper focused on vaccinating kids right now when they are the lowest risk and they do spread the least and. And so, you know, I I want us to get to the point where people are able to vaccinate their kids if they want to. And um, but I kind of I kind of worry that we're going to get to this this point of like kids are not going to be allowed to do certain things if they are not vaccinated. vaccinated. And, yeah. and, and I guess that worries me. Um, and the other thing that worries me a little bit is like when you have a population that's so low risk from for severe outcome. And then you're giving them a vaccine um, that has the potential of having a bad outcome. Like you have a much lower threshold for saying, you know what, that's not appropriate. You know, even if there's like a couple bad outcomes, like if we just take the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, for example. So like there was one, there was one case that was an 18 year old um, female of the central uh, venous sinus thrombosis associated with the vaccine. And so that just made me think, wow, you know, if we, you know, start vaccinating lots of kids and we have like, you know, I don't know, 20 cases of that, which is, as you know, as an ICU doctor, I mean, it can be really devastating disease. It can kill you. It can disable you for life. Like, you know, at what point would we say, well, like that, that, that's just, that's just way too much, you know, that's not acceptable yeah. risk. Um, and so it's, it becomes an interesting risk calculus and, you know, looking at, at Israel, they, they just announced that they're not going to be vaccinating any children under 12. Um, so they, they basically have already reached a point of like, I don't know if you call it herd immunity, but the, mm-hmm. but the virus is, is endemic. It's not like pandemic proportions there anymore. And, and I think that was really smart. Um, and I kind of wish the world would take that approach unless some, a child is like very high risk of COVID um, and just kind of like 
vaccinate all the high risk people. And I actually think we would find that we would get the disease under under control um, much better. And it may not be necessary to vaccinate the kids. Mm -hmm. And if we do get to the point where we have the supplies and resources and vaccines, then then, yeah, I mean, I think it should you know, then I think kids should should at least have the option of being vaccinated. And depending on the safety, maybe, you know, we'll require it will require them like other vaccines for schools. Yeah. But I don't think we need to rush it. <laughs> no, fair enough. What I'm hearing is probably we get that level of herd immunity without the young ones getting vaccinated, like the 12 and unders from the Israeli experience. Um, right. But uh, yeah, we got to think about the cost benefit. Yeah. I, from my personal point of view is, you know, let's make sure, let's evaluate it, make sure, make sure it's safe and then take yeah. it from there and, and see if. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. we agree on that. hundred percent. The, what about asymptomatic testing? I've always had a tough time with this one. Like, uh, like part of me tells me, yeah, maybe it makes sense. But then when you add the false positive rates, depending on uh, like for PCR, depending on what the level of, um, you know, uh, COVID out in the community, you know, is it causing more harm than good? I actually don't know the, I don't truly have an opinion on this one yet. So I'm curious to hear what you think. Uh, yeah, about yeah so, definitely. I have an opinion on this. Um, and, and so the thing is with testing kids is, is it, or surveillance testing in schools is, um, first of all, it depends on the prevalence rate in the population that you're looking at. So we already know that it's pretty low, low prevalence rate. Like, well, here in California, where we basically were looking at the numbers. So, um, so we, in the San Francisco uh, school district, so we just published this in the Washington Post, but um, this was a pri private schools in San Francisco. So they were using a test with, with a 1% false positivity rate, the saliva-based PCR. And so their experience with testing all the children was that um, I can't remember if it was eight or nine or seven out of eight, but um, I think it was seven out of eight of the positives were determined to be false positives. Seven out of the eight? Yeah, wow. on, on retesting. And so, so when you get to the prevalence where we have in California right now, depending on your false positivity rate, you're going to have you know, between, uh, you know, 80, 85 to 95% false positive rate. So you're like almost, you know, every test you do is going to be a false positive. Now, there are some tests on the market that have lower uh, false positive rates. Um, and I know our, our diocese here um, use the, the Binax, uh, Binax now, the Abbott one, which. The Abbott. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Antigen. And so, um, so that ended up, you know, being at, at $20 per student, even though it's $5. And then, so we tested all the middle school students. It was like a thousand kids and we had one positive out of everyone. And that one was actually just a lingering positive um, from a prior infection. And so, you know, our diocese decided to spend the testing because it was like an entire day long of like a hundred volunteers doing this and the supplies and like, um, and then, so you, you put on top of that. So let's say that you, you actually find a true positive case, the chance that that is actually going to spread further in school is around 0.5%. Um, so it's like um, it's it it ends up being very low yield because children. Um, what is it like? Uh, it, so children have about half the rate of of actually 
uh, having culturable virus if they have an actual PCR positive. And so children are just very unlikely to spread it, even if they are positive. And then the consequences are that these kids are being quarantined, like their whole class is being quarantined. And like, you know, we're having all, so in San Francisco, for example, it was like they had eight different classes that all lost over a week of school, um, you know, for just the one true positive. And that true positive was like coughing and had a fever and just didn't tell anyone. So it was like, well, all of that could have been saved if we'd just been testing the symptomatic people. So, you know, it's kind of, it's like, you know, when, when, when we went from like testing a certain population for, for HIV, like, um, you know, um, homosexual males or whatever in San Francisco, when the prevalence was really high, and then you take it to like, I believe it was like they started testing military recruits and then the, the test had 95% um, specificity. And then it was like 5% of all these people you tested, they ended up with a positive test, mm-hmm. but, but they didn't have HIV. So it's like, you know, you, you, we really have to be careful about what tests we're using and like what the false positive rate is. And then also acknowledge that like, even if they are true positives, like, people end up being positive for a long time. And if they're asymptomatic, like out of asymptomatic people, you know, only 0.7% spread in their own house. So it ends up, you know, the, the, the budget that would be required to do the surveillance testing for the entire country of the United States is $42 billion. Um, and then it's like, you have to kind of continuously disrupt learning to, to, to do this every time that there's a positive. And so it's, it's just something that needs to be really seriously considered depending on what the prevalence is where you are. And, and I mean, because there have been so many schools that have been open safely all along without doing the surveillance testing, you know, it may just add more, more difficult, you know, situations and more trouble than, than it's worth, you know. Does your opinion change if the prevalence is high? Yeah. So if the prevalence is higher, I think, then you have more of a chance of the, the, the test being helpful. Um, you know, you have more chance of, of identifying a real positive. And, you know, I, I, it's a good question, like what that, what that threshold should be. Um, but yeah. I, yeah, I, but I, I would have to do an, a further calculation to figure yeah. that out. But certainly when it's low prevalence, like uh, the, the, the return on investment seems to be quite poor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I, I, I love the idea of testing if kids are exposed or if they have symptoms, you know, to make sure that they're not going to spread it further. But, you know, it is it is actually a big deal to be doing this. I, you know, actually, we're doing a follow up in the Wood County, Wisconsin study where we were doing surveillance testing among the kids. And I don't really want to give away the results, but basically like they couldn't get the kids to consent to do it. And then they couldn't find enough volunteers. They couldn't get the funding to actually do it. Um, and so like, you know, we just ended up saying, you know, we're, we're suspending the whole thing because we're really not finding, we're finding so few cases. Um, and, and we knew already from our first study that the cases were so unlikely to spread in the school. So it was like, it just wasn't sustainable for, mm-hmm. for the school to keep doing it. No, it makes sense. Last question extracurricular activities, you know, whether it's sports, whether it's tennis, I don't know, in terms of all we know about COVID right now and our kids, do you have a, do you have an opinion towards that? I mean, yeah, I, I, 
I think that we should be finding ways that we can make like all the sports and extracurricular activities safe. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have a study coming out soon about actually indoor hockey um, where we were able to minimize transmission, even when kids were unmasked. And oh, you got to tell me, that, I, like I coach I, hockey. Well, I can't give away the whole thing now, but I'll okay. just say, like, uh, you know, we didn't have any on, uh, we didn't have any in the in the arena transmission after we we changed like protocols and, um, you know, had kids like put on all their clothing out outside before they went into the rink and then they got to do everything, um, you know, all on the rink unmasked, um, as normal. And then any like limited amount of spectators who had to wear a mask. Um, but you know, it was like, there was an outbreak on the team and, and, um, it was associated like with a picture night where like everyone was in a tiny room and, um, but yeah, we're, we're going to be publishing it. <laughs> okay. It'll be great. Cause literally yeah, I, I, was, think it's like, really I was on the COVID committee. So like we would have all these suggestions, all these meetings about how to handle it, yeah. our approach on ice. But, uh, no, that's, that's great. I, I love the idea of, you know, just finding a way just, yes your, exactly you know what i mean set your values what's important to you for example kids my my humble opinion kids being in school how do we do it safely how do we do it in a way that really reduces their risk even though as we talked about you know they're not a major source of spread not a major source of outbreaks um but right. whatever we can do to, to to try and minimize risk let's do it if we could be outside more if we could Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of just moving things outside when you can. And um, yeah, I mean, it's so, so much safer out there. And we already talked about the soccer study and I'll tell you about a rugby study too, about uh, how there were like, uh, so these, these were adults. So, you know, the infectious Petri dishes that adults are. So they, uh, they, there were, I believe it was nine players were infected. So they didn't know that they were infected until they got the result back after the game and they had cameras like monitoring, like who, everyone they tackled and everything like during the game. And there were, so there were no players that were found to be infected during the game, even though the infect it, it, the players were infected and tackling each other and not wearing masks. So mm-hmm. it was a small study, but it was like, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good. You know? So yeah. I think outdoors is like outdoors, asymptomatic, um, like is very safe. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love it. Tracy. Oh my goodness. This was so, I've been saying this a lot lately, but this has been therapeutic hearing oh, your perspective <laughs> on how we have been keeping our, our school safe, how we, you know, schools have been uh, not a major source of spread running us through the, the Wood County study. And despite having those insane amount of COVID in the community, how ki- uh, kids remain safe in schools. I, I I really want to commend you for your work, and you, you know if we if we open things up and I, I know I've referred to your study forty eight hundred times. Um, <laughs> I'm like, look track. at this shit! Yeah. Come on, yo, get the kids back to school, please. Thank you, thank <laughs> but, you. Uh, I, I really well, shout out to you. Amy Falk, who's the first author, actually, is and she is amazing, amazing person to work with. So oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Amy, too. But yeah, thanks for joining us. It means the world to us, and uh, I hope we get to do this again, Tracy. Oh, thank you, Quadro. This is awesome. Happy to be on your show. It's fun. Wow, tell me that wasn't full of knowledge. It was being dropped on your mind, grapes. Thanks again, Tracy. That was awesome. 
follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our merch, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash shop. Solving wellness, great initiative that we've been pumping out. Healthcare providers trying to just burn out. Go to solvingwellness.com. Check it out. All our fans out there, thank you so much. Stay safe out there, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.